All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the video version of this episode, you can find a link in the show notes. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. It would seem, too, that even in this system, both the murderer and the victim, I would say, seem to be in some very real sense, both victims of God's, you know, unchangeable decree. So I think what you're doing is you're trying to frame up uh, uh, an idea that's uh, a finite temporal analogy of an infinite, holy, all-powerful God. To start out here, I just want to kind of give a, I guess, just explain real quick, and then I'll let you kind of introduce uh, a bit about yourself, uh, Dave, and basically how you came to be a Calvinist and then maybe help people also understand what your particular views uh, of Calvinism are, like what they look like, what form of sure. it you you would take. But the purpose of this video, um, I, I think we kind of agree that we're not, maybe we might, we might, I don't know, I'll, I'll see how, how both of us feel about it, but for a title, we could maybe say, you know, uh, uh, friendly debate between a Calvinist and non-Calvinist. But for for the purpose of this conversation, we're trying to avoid even calling this a debate. We're calling this a conversation between Dave, who who uh, I feel um, we've been talking for the past two or three weeks, you know, through WhatsApp and, and so on. And, and I feel Dave is, although I haven't met him face to face, I consider Dave to be a friend, uh, even though we have alternative perspectives on this. And so this conversation is not about trying to, you know, uh, uh, do a mic drops on the other one or or make the other one look dumb, but to genuinely, again, try to understand each other's positions and then to yeah. just let other people hear perhaps two different perspectives being shared so that you can weigh them and see which one, which one do you personally think is more valid. And so, mm-hmm. This is going to be a friendly conversation. That doesn't mean that we won't disagree with each other. That doesn't mean that uh, uh, there won't be passion behind the things that we say. But just to be clear, I think it's more important to pursue genuine love and respect than it is to pursue trying to prove that you have the right, you know, theology. So, yeah, we don't write it down when we enter heaven, right? We don't have to yes. write a test when we enter heaven and say, did you get this point and this point and this point right? That's that's just not the way it works. So that, that that's a great point. Yeah. That I think the main God's main concern isn't going to be whether you had every single point of doctrine, you know, completely accurate. <laughs> uh yeah. You see Jesus very little talking about, you know, to the disciples that, you know, concern about whether all of their doctrinal uh, positions were in a row. That's not to say that it wasn't, an, it's not important. Uh, exactly. uh, but, but what he was concerned about, whether it was the Pharisees or his followers was what, whether their, the condition of their heart was one that was expressing love for other people. And, yeah. and that 
at the end of the day, that is like Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And I believe that is yeah. the case for these conversations. So, uh, Dave, let's let's just kind of get into this discussion here and we can start with you just briefly again, introducing yourself a bit about who you are and then tell us kind of how you you came to believe in Calvinism. Okay. So I grew up reformed. I was born into reformed family at church and, uh, you know, until my twenties, till I got married was in a reformed church and really, I, I, you know, without getting into too much personal stuff, but I kind of had a lukewarm faith. So I wasn't particularly, uh, you know, strong in my faith. I wasn't always, uh, seeing things properly, probably a little bit of self-righteousness or probably a little bit of motivation to just, you know, make my own life the way I wanted. I suppose a lot of people have that, right? I run my own business and I, I just didn't have a strong faith. I always went to church. My wife, wonderful believer. God bless me with her. That's a big part of why I am where I am too. Um, but I can honestly say that growing up that the reformed church I was in, I can't really remember them talking about Calvinism the way I often hear it discussed online in terms of, you know, uh, these are the things you believe uh, as far as determinism. You know, I don't remember any of that. And, and you know, I did take catechism growing up. And, yeah, we did learn the doctrines of grace, but it was not the focus. It was not the emphasis. The emphasis is Christ's love for us, uh, what he did for us, and how we need to put our trust and our faith in him. So, you know, just a, a nutshell idea of how I grew up. Um, we left the Reformed Church. We changed churches because my wife started going to a Bible study to a church that was not Reformed. And I believe this is God working in my life to help me to see things more clearly. So this church, the pastor, was um, Reformed in his doctrine, but it was not a Reformed church. And I can say that the people I met there were all wonderful, wonderful people. And, I, you know, we're still at that same church. And um, that really is what led me into sort of understanding two sides of this, because he would have sermons where he would explain both sides of a lot of different issues. And on this issue, uh, as far as election and predestination, what does it mean? What does the Bible teach? Uh, so yes, in his soteriology, he, he did believe the doctrines of grace. Our church still teaches that. Um, but it's not like it's a, it's not a, a real out front type of a, a thing. I, um, it, it's just part of how God works in his in this church and in, in the world. So um, anyway, I'm rambling a little bit here. So anyway, the pastor who was there, he ended up uh, dying in 2000, I believe it was 2018. It's about five years ago. And that event kind of really affected me. Like it really did. And then we also had in my extended family, we had a 15 year old girl who died in a car accident and her niece, uh, who was three months old, also died in the same accident. And I, I don't know why, um, but that just really made me start to think about life and who God is and how we deal with things and how we deal with grief. Um, and I just totally changed. I, I Every day in the Word, every day praying and trying to figure these things out. And this is where I stumbled across your channel. Um, I've watched all kinds of different views on this. Um, and listening to you um, try to get into the word, try to explain what is it saying. 
I thought was really good. That's why I kind of reached out to you. So in my personal life, like everybody's got struggles, but I think I think the Calvinist view of soteriology and not just that, I mean, it's more of a overall view of, of doctrine in terms of how God's working in the world, not, not just soteriology. I, I think that gives people the assurance that he's in control. And I think that's one of the keys that, that I find is the, um, one of the most important things to understand is that once you realize God is in control, he's not the author, but he, he does know exactly how things are playing out. I think that just gives people the assurance to trust him more. And yeah, we're going to probably get into a little bit of that too. So, but yeah, um, yeah that, you know, trying to give you a little testimony without getting yes. too, too deep into it. But yeah. Could you explain a little bit, maybe just to, um, paint a picture for people because what what i find when i make videos on this is that one of the most common responses i'm getting with my calvinism videos is calvinist saying hey that's not calvinism that's not calvinism you're misrepresenting calvinism you don't understand calvinism and and i i'm convinced that that's not true i don't think i'm misrepresenting calvinism i think i'm misrepresenting a lot of individuals, individual forms of Calvinism. And so what, what I think um, I hope people realize is that there are, there's not just one version of Calvinism that people hold to. And I mostly try to look at the, the version of Calvinism that the prominent people like John Piper or even John Calvin would, um, you know, would, would teach. And so could you give us an idea of like, where, where do you land on this spectrum? Um, you know, you have John Piper, I don't, I think maybe somewhat tongue in cheek, but he'll say like, he's a seven point Calvinist. Um, and so you do have four point, you, ha you know, you have various uh, uh, forms of it. So where, I guess, would you land on this? Uh, well, I, it's funny. You sent me the text calling Piper a seven-point Calvinist, and I'd never heard that before, so I, I wasn't quite sure what you meant by that. That was kind of funny, but uh, yeah, no, I consider myself a five-point Calvinist, but how are we defining those terms uh, is, is critical, because I think when you begin to unpack it, uh, first of all, I think the TULIP acronym is not helpful. I, I, I think that creates division right away, because they're trying to force an idea into a letter or a word that isn't really, I don't think, unpacking it very well. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I'm not going to go through it all, but I think I think that's one of the misrepresentations of it is that they right away jump to that acronym TULIP and and try to unpack it. And, and okay, there's a lot to be said about that. There's obviously been, you know, a lot of ink spilled over the years on these issues. But um, mm -hmm. to, to unpack exactly where I stand, I, I believe... Uh, to also use a word that I don't think I've ever heard spoken in church is determinism. Um, how God determines everything to come to pass, I believe he does. I don't believe he's the author of sin. He is not happy about evil or sin. However, in his decree, he allows it. And I think there are very clear indications in God's word that show that. And I think that's one of the things that is is a very difficult question. Nobody's nobody's pretending that's an easy thing to unpack, right? Um, everybody's affected by evil at some point in very many degrees. I mean, I sit here in my nice warm house with a cup of coffee talking about evil while I'm not really, you know, 
exposed to it in the way a lot of people are. And that's, you know, that's also um, something we have to be, be aware of. I mean, there are persecutions going on in the world against Christians that we just in our Western world can't really get our head around, right? So, um, and I think in the Bible too, when they talk about the persecutions in the New Testament, those are real events that people had to say, okay, is God in control or not, right? When they're being persecuted. And I think that's a big part of Calvinism is that they try to let people know that through these things, God is still in control. He is still the author of the events of your life and you have to put your faith in him. So, um, yes, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I, I do think the Bible is pretty clear on, on that. You know, we can go text by text or whatever, but um, I think in general, I think the Bible is pretty clear on that. And I think it's important that people do rest in the fact that God is in control. Like, what's the alternative? If, if he's not in control, then I actually I just heard something this morning because I, I can't remember who it was I listened to, but they said, imagine in eternity in heaven, uh, God is going to abolish evil. He is not going to allow evil. But in this world, he does allow evil. So in some sense, he is in control of it, right? And in, in the future, in our eternal salvation, when we're with him, it won't even be a question. There will be nothing, no sin, no evil. And, and so he's obviously in control of it. So, yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. And I think that's that's one thing that maybe there's often some misunderstandings about because myself as a non-Calvinist, like I've for for years listened to John Piper, his his sermons on the sovereignty of God. And though there were nuances to what he said that I did not fully align with, the bulk of what he said, I could fully get on board with. Obviously, yeah. when when he when he. I think when he and even you and I use the word got, you know, control, I think we might have different ideas about what that necessitates and what that looks like as it actually plays out in reality. But I fully get on board with the idea that God is 100% in control of all things, 100% sovereign, sovereign meaning as the word does just rule, uh, authority over all things. Um, it, I think it, the the distinction would come in again how how we think that actually plays out in reality. What does that actually look like? What does God God's control over everything uh, uh, actually look like? And so maybe um, it, I want to get to I think the first text where I think we t talked about going over was Ephesians one because that's kind of where again our conversation began. Um, mm -hmm. But before that, I think maybe to kind of, again, just so we can understand where each other are coming from here. And I, I would even wonder, based off some of what you just said, because you, I heard you using the word allow a couple times, which I think is a word that would not even be able to be used in, in John Piper's, for example, uh, his vocabulary um, related to God's sovereignty. I just I think he would not ever use the word i mean he might use the word allow but if you if you really get to the foundations of what he's saying i think he would make sure to clarify that what he means is is yes god decisively causes ordains all things there is really the word allow isn't the best most accurate way of thinking about it so i, I if, if it's all right with you, I want to just read, I'm going to read uh, a couple quotes. So one quote is from um, Desiring God's 
uh, web page. I don't think this was John Piper himself, but it's somebody on the Desiring God page who, you know, is, is part of that ministry and who they're endorsing, obviously, by posting this guy's sermon and his writings, the things that were said. So I'm, I'm going to read this and maybe this might help because we can see, we can both answer, do we agree with what is, what's just said uh, or not? So, quote, God brings about all things in accordance with his will. In other words, it isn't just that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. It is rather that he himself brings about these evil aspects for his glory and his people's good. This includes, as incredible and as unacceptable as it may currently seem, God's having even brought about the Nazis' brutality at Birkenau, don't know if I'm saying that right, and Auschwitz, as well as the terrible killings of Dennis Rader and even the sexual abuse of a young child. So again, he's saying, uh, end quote there, but he's saying, it's not only that God, you know, takes these evil circumstances, these things that play out due to man's decisions and takes those things and then turns them to good. It's actually that God is kind of at the beginning, making sure that these, these evil things will unchangeably definitely come about. And so um, I guess would you, having heard that, uh, and, and maybe you'd want a little bit more time to look at it, but just offhand, how, what's your kind of initial response or reaction to that? Is that something you would agree with? Would you have some disagreement with anything there? Mm -hmm. I, I think I wouldn't say it quite so strongly. I, I think I would stick with the word allow, but within mm -hmm. the word allow, you do have to understand that by allowing it, he's still in control. So I, I think that's probably what Piper's trying to say. And I think also I, I've heard other people try to explain this. Um, I, I'm really not going to drop names. I know we we joked about that before. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to attack Piper. I like Piper. But um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I think I would have worded it maybe differently. But, I, you know, I, I'm not a theologian. I, I, you know, in the word allow, God is still in control of that event, you know. Uh, yes, but you know, but when so, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but I just wanted to agree though because this is something I hear a lot too a pushback from Calvinists when I will say these things. Wouldn't you see that just just from an you know an initial surface level viewpoint of the situation to have a situation, for example, where somebody sees a murder taking place, a man murdering a helpless child or woman, he sees it and he doesn't do anything about it, you know, that's pr a problem. I'll, I'll grant you, you know, there's a problem there that, you know, there's questions that raises, why did he do that? But I think just initially there's an apparent difference between God allowing it and God in a very real sense being the one who's actually doing the murdering or causing mm -hmm. the murdering, you know? And so I think that's why, that's why I think there is, you know, and, and what I'm going to read here in a minute, the next quote from John Calvin, he even, he even will kind of, push back on Calvinists using the word allow as if that actually makes sense within the systematic. So, okay. so sorry to cut you off. I just, I think that's something that I think there's a, like, just even on a surface level, there's a moral difference there. Even, even okay. though, yes, I would admit there's problems that arise from both allowing or causing, but I think just objectively to directly cause the evil to say he, he decisively causes it. 
is just that even on a basic surface level is apparently, I think, objectively worse, if, okay. if that makes sense. Okay, so let me let me just address that quickly. So I think what you're doing is you're trying to frame up uh, uh, an idea that's uh, a finite temporal analogy of an infinite, holy, all-powerful God. And I think that's a difficult thing to do because we do not see eternity. We only see an event in time with our eyes. And how that plays out in eternity is something we just cannot get our head around. So I think it's a really difficult thing as a human being to say, why did God allow this? Or why did God make this happen? Or why did this, you know, there's some people that believe God is still learning. God doesn't even know when things happen. So, you know, there's a whole openness theology that talks about that. You know, right. everybody's everybody's trying to answer these questions. You know, when when really I don't think in our finite minds it's even really possible. So I think what Calvin and Piper and you know other people are trying to get their head around is these are difficult things. How do mm -hmm. we understand it? How do we understand that? You know, the, the idea of Hitler. Could God have had Hitler be killed in World War One? Of course he could. Would that have eliminated all of World War II? I guess so, unless somebody else rose to power. But, you know, the evil that happens in the world, like it is just mind blowing how much evil is occurring in the world and has been since the fall. How do we, how do we even get our head around that other than to say, God is in control of this. He has to be. You know, in our finite minds, it's just so hard to, to understand it. But yeah, we have to yes. like we have to we have to have that faith and say, yes, God, like, look at the shooting that happened in Nashville. Um, I, wa I, I watched a lot of the stuff on that. And that is actually a Presbyterian church. That's a church that would believe what I believe. And I made a comment on a video. I don't think it was one of your videos, but I made a comment. I said, imagine not knowing that God's in control. How would those people react to their children being shot down? I think that the proper response is complete sorrow, absolute brokenness, but still trusting God and saying, God, I don't know why, but I still believe I will have faith in you. I will still rely on you for the, you know, you just have to do that as a Christian. Yeah. I don't know any other option, right? Can we make sense of it? No, no, there are no answers. Yeah. There's no answers in our lifetime. So yes, that, you know, and and I I agree that there is a, a massive amounts of comfort in in knowing that whatever happens, even in horrific events like that, whatever ter uh, terrible things come in your own my own personal life, that that I again I one hundred percent can get behind the statement that God is in full control of that, and it, it, things don't come to pass in my life that He is not that by catch Him off guard. Or that he's not aware of. Now, I, again, what I would, how I would push back, I think, to some of the things you just said, mm -hmm. because talking about this specific example, for instance, of family who have, you know, loved ones who were brutally murdered, and again, I would agree that yes, there is so much comfort that they can find in this idea that God is God is in control, and I I agree with you too that we cannot fully understand it, but 
the prayer that a person might pray, I think here, here's maybe an example of what might be the different prayer between a, a Calvinist and a non-Calvinist would be, I as a non-Calvinist in my approaching God, if that were me in the situation would say, God, I don't, I do not understand why you allowed this. You allowed this person to make these choices. Um, you didn't want him to make this. This is not something that pleases you at all, but you allowed this to happen. I don't understand it, but I trust you. I think a Calvinist, at least if you're following in line with like John Piper and, and Calvin and, 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 you know, R.C. Sproul and others, you would have to pray more like this. It would be, God, I don't know why you unchangeably caused this to happen. Like you, you actually were the originator of this evil occurrence happening. It happened precisely because it was your specific determination is, you know, these are, these are words that, that, you know, the prominent Calvinist will use. And so that, that again would be where I would just say, like, I can fully get behind the idea of God, God is in full control in allowing it. And yes, there's still responsibility there. And, and I would fully acknowledge there's a problem even in my position. Why would he allow that? That doesn't seem right. And and I'm not saying I have the full answers to that, but I think beginning to provide an explanation for why God would allow something, explanations that would still be in line with the biblical definitions of love and goodness that we see given in scriptures would be different than saying, you know, God decisively caused this horrific event, not only, you know, caused the, the, he, he caused the person not only to do the action of the killing, but he caused this person to be born with such a nature that he could only desire to do evil things and, and basically withheld from this person, even the murderer, you know, an ability to, to repent, to believe God basically never even offered that as an option to the murderer. And so I would say that it would seem too that even in the system, both the murderer and the victim, I would say, seem to be in some very real sense, both victims of God's, you know, unchangeable decree. And so that was, that was a lot. And so I'm just going to let you maybe respond and share whatever thoughts you would have to, to the, the vantage point that I would be coming from here. Okay. Every person I know, Calvinist, non-Calvinist, whoever, would pray like you pray. Okay? That's the mm -hmm. appropriate prayer. That The appropriate prayer is to say to God, I do not understand, but I still trust you. That's it. Right? I think, I think what Calvin and Piper and these guys, you know, we keep dropping those names. There's others, obviously. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to see it from God's view of eternity. That God not just allowed it, but obviously he is to some degree in control of it and could have prevented it. If he could have prevented it, it's more than just allowing. It's it's really, it, it's an ordained event that God has said, because he's completely outside of time. You know, we're getting into philosophy here too, but, you know, because right. he's outside of time, how else could it be? He, he could stop anything at any moment he ever wanted to, but he decides to not do that. So, you know, can I read a quote actually? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You've you've probably heard the quote from the Westminster Confession. I've heard many people quote that talking about uh -huh. this very issue, right? Right. Uh, the, the the Belgic Confession, which is actually the Westminster Confession, 
in the Dutch Reformed churches. Uh, it's the same idea, but it's it's written a little bit differently. So, um, so I'll, I'll just kind of stop where I think it's appropriate. So, uh, we believe that the same God, after He had created all things, did not forsake them, nor give them up to fortune or to chance, but that He rules and governs according to His holy will, so that nothing happens in the world without His appointment. Nevertheless. God neither is the author of, nor can he ever be charged with the sins that are committed. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. I, I, I just thought that's just a great summary of, of how we should think of this. He's never the author. He never ordains, like he, he ordains it, but he never commits the act. And I think there's multiple examples in the Bible of that. Just, you know, the book of Job, obviously, is the most stark example. Um, I've studied Job a fair bit, actually. And I think it's interesting when you see when Job is talking, or sorry, sorry, when Satan is talking to God, and God says, you can do anything you want, you just cannot kill Job. And my question in my mind came up, why did Satan even obey God in that? Like, why did Satan have to obey God to not kill Job? So obviously God is to some degree able to control Satan in the to limit his effectiveness, to limit what he can do. So, yeah, just a lot of, I mean, these are all hard questions, right? So. Right. Okay, so let me just get to, I mentioned the John Calvin quote, and this, this will kind of, maybe even help us see, you know, areas where maybe John Calvin would not have lined up with some of these confessions. Um, well, he's, so, he's a fallible human being, just like you and I. So, right. I, exactly. Yes. You know, I, I don't, I don't agree with everything he said. I think there's some things that he said where I actually, I have, I've read very little of his, to be honest, very little. So I have a few quotes from him, but I've read yeah. very little of John Calvin. Yeah. So the, and, and, and again, the purpose of this, and we'll, we'll try to move on here in a minute so we can actually discuss a specific passage, again, sure. starting with Ephesians sure. 1, because I think it'll be interesting to kind of sure. engage each other's views with that. But just again, to try to get, I, I again, I'm trying to get a clear understanding of what exactly, where, where exactly you're coming from. And so maybe um, this this quote might help in and seeing again, this will be, a, I'll read it, and we can both say, you know, do we agree? What are the problems we see with this quote? So John Calvin, um, and this is a quote from the eternal destination of, uh, predestination of God. This is one, obviously, I'm sure this is a quote that many people will be familiar with because it's probably one that's thrown around by non-Calvinists a lot. I, I acknowledge that, but I do think there's some things in here that, that are clarifying. So sure, he says, how foolish and frail is the support of divine justice afforded by the suggestion that evils come to be not by his will, but by his permission. It is a quite frivolous refuge to say that God otiously permits them when scripture so shows him not only willing, but the author of them. So he's, he's making this distinction between um, God willing something to happen and God permissing something to happen. So, Mm -hmm. Here he said, God, scripture shows, according to Calvin, scriptures show that God is, you know, he's not only willing or permissive of the evil things that come to happen, but he is in fact the author of them. 
And he says, who does not tremble at these judgments with which God works in the hearts of even the wicked, whatever he will, rewarding them nonetheless, according to desert. Again, it is quite clear from the evidence of scripture that God works in the hearts of men to incline their wills just as he will, whether to good for his mercy's sake or to evil according to their merits. And so I, I think that what I'm hearing from you, I do not hear you, David, being able to line up at least full wholeheartedly with the things being said here. But I think that when you talk about how there there's a mystery and you think the John Pipers and Calvins in these situations are trying to get in, into, you know, explaining God's sovereignty uh, uh, and getting into things that maybe are just too lofty for us to understand. Uh, and very much uh, of what you're saying there, I would agree with you. And And my problem with this is that I don't think you can just say, well, you know, He's he's saying he's just basically that's another way of him saying you know God God allows things and we just don't understand how how evil happens. I think this is an example of John Calvin and when I think John Piper does the same thing is they don't they don't leave God's sovereignty up to a whole lot of mystery on many cases. They go into giving a clear sort of explanation of how it actually works and what that mm -hmm. means is that God not only allows permits the evil to happen, he's actually according to John Calvin here, he's moving the wills of men to do evil. So you have James saying God doesn't even tempt a person to do evil. And you have Calvin saying, no, God actually even implants or moves a person's will to do, toward the temptation in the first place uh, for it to even be appealing to him. And so I would just say, this is where this, these are the things that I, you know, Talking to you, I would probably have a very little issues with with the version of Calvinism you're even would hold to and, and promote. Um, but it's this sort of version of Calvinism that I I think I just don't see an, any other way around it. Concluding God as as He will say He's the author. God's not just somebody who's working evil things for good. God's somebody who is puppeting and and programming the evil into reality programming and causing even men to have the exact sinful desires that they have. And then the, the mystery that Calvin is affording isn't these specific, you know, examples of how God does it. What the mystery he's affording is that we just simply don't know how God is still good in light of the fact that he both uh, causes men to do evil and then he condemns them for the very evil he caused them to do. That's the mystery. Calvin says, there's the mystery. We don't know how that works. I'm saying I think he's he's, you know, many steps removed from where the mystery actually exists. And, and the mystery is in how God allows the evil. I, I just think to, to go to that point of saying God is the one moving the wills of men to do evil is just that. Again, that's where I'd have the issue. And, and from the sound of what you're saying, you probably wouldn't align with that. But but share your kind of thoughts about okay. about that quote. Yeah, so just a couple of things pop in my head. So I, I, I've never heard that taught. Like I've never heard that taught anywhere in any church I've ever gone to. Um, to to be that bold, to make that bold a statement. Um, I think I, I hesitate to say this as well, but I you know it's an honest statement. Uh, there are Calvinist churches I wouldn't go to. Uh, I think I think they're too too strong on certain issues. I I think. I think there's a love of God in the world that we need to embrace, that we need to mm -hmm. talk about. I think that is the primary thing that we need to be 
focusing on. I've got a few quotes I'll read you from a second, not just from Calvin, but I, I think that's what church's role in the world is, is to bring the love of Christ to the world. Not, not to t teach the world how no matter what they do, it doesn't matter because they're determined already. You know, right. that whole idea of determinism, it's a funny thing, right? Um, I, I do believe in election as far as the Calvinist view of election, but that doesn't negate the idea that people are free to choose because the, the gospel message is that every man has the ability to choose. Uh, and that is a God-given ability. I think outside of our finite minds in the infinite nature of God, I don't see any other way that God already knows who will be with him in heaven. So God doesn't have to hope that someone's coming to heaven. God isn't trying to figure out how this is going to work out in the end. I think it's all figured out uh, in eternity, eternity from the beginning to eternity past. I think the Bible is pretty clear on that. Um, but that doesn't negate our responsibility in any way. You know, when I hear guys like, you know, like yourself, I've heard you say this. I've read some of your responses to other people. And, you know, if determinism is true, then there's no options. Well, okay, that's that's a true statement to a degree. But God has created us as free creatures. We, we have the ability to choose right and wrong. We are not forced to do anything even though the events that take place are free for us to choose, those are still ordained by God to some degree. He's still allowing those choices. So mm -hmm. however degree of control you want to put on that, I think we can agree that that just makes sense. Would I say it as strongly as Calvin did there? I, I don't, I don't think I would. Um, yeah. Maybe the way Piper says it, maybe I wouldn't say it that way either. Listen, we have the ability to choose. You, you know, you do. You really do. Um, and I think I'll I'll share a couple of quotes. I think Calvin taught that, too. And, and here's what else I thought of, Jordan. When you read that quote, I often wonder, what was the context of that quote? Who was he trying to uh, push back on? Like how during the time of the Reformation, you know, it was such a hard time for these guys to try to regain the truth of the Bible. And maybe they pushed back further than they should have to make a point. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Right. It's I, possible. Yeah. Right? And I think the thing with that is there are, you know, I think that's not the only place where you will see Calvin making such mm -hmm. dogmatic and clear statements, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that, yes, maybe, maybe we could just chalk it more up to a contextual thing. And it was sort of the specific thing that he would just kind of over overstated the, the points he was trying to make. It's just, I think it's the fact that this shows up, you know, multiple times in, in his writings. And I'm not claiming I've read them all. I haven't read all of Calvin very little. Um, so that's on, that's on me, but I, I don't, I just think that it, it would be hard. Um, it, I guess here's what I'd say. If I bring up these quotes and, and it can be demonstrated that the context shows that Calvin didn't really think that God orchestrates or specifically causes the evil desires of men, you know, I'd be open to hearing that and saying, Hey, listen, I've been sharing this quote. I got it wrong. I did not read the entire book or, uh, or section that this came from. And it's obvious Calvin didn't actually mean that God controls the wills, the evil wills of men. 
if that could be shown to me, I would just make a public apology and say, hey, guys, I shouldn't have shared that quote. I got it wrong. But I would hey, just that's, say that's, that's, our, our, that's our next I'll, video. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll leave that to the Calvinist to demonstrate that and to show sure. that, you know, sure. there's other quotes where he says the same thing. And if you think the context says something else than what I'm presenting in these videos, and I would say that I would let others demonstrate that. Um, so anyways, you can you can continue on. I think you were maybe going to share some quotes there before I kind of. Yeah, off. sure. So I'll, I'll just I'll just pick a couple and, um, you know, and I've made a couple of comments on online. And then I said, this is what Calvin believes. And then people push back. Well, he can't believe that because he also said this. Well, OK, you know, are you looking at Calvin's quotes from a finite temporal view or are you trying to understand the God's view of his whole creation. I think that's where maybe the difference comes in. I don't know if that's clear to people or not, but okay. So, uh, John Calvin. So faith is here. This is good. You're going to like this one. Faith okay. is like an, faith is like an empty open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. Ooh, that's good. That's, that's John Ooh, Calvin. That's good. I like that. Okay. Like, that's, that's good. That's, that's what I heard growing up. That's what our faith is, right? Okay. Can so, you can you read that once more? Yeah. Dave? So faith is like an empty open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. I like that. I'm gonna use that. That's a it's, that's a great definition of faith. How beautiful is that? Yeah. Right? And that's how I feel. That's you know, that's how I feel. It's like God. Let me let me just do your will. Help me to honor you by serving you in a way that is loving to others, that is promoting the gospel in the world. Help me to be a witness in the world for you. That's that's my prayer every day. So, all right, a couple more. Um, we will never be clothed in the righteousness of Christ except we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of ourselves. That's a good one too. Mm -hmm. uh, humility is the beginning of true intelligence. I gave up all for Christ. And what have I found? I have found everything in Christ. This is all John Calvin. He's a pretty, pretty good guy, I think. So yeah, maybe he said a few things that are a little bit too deterministic, but. Uh. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. The, do you have another one? Yeah, one more. Men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. Yeah, those are good. I love it. That's yeah. that's what I grew up that's what I grew up hearing. When I when I hear the determinism stuff, I'm confused because I'm thinking that's that's not what Calvinism is teaching. We we don't teach that no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. I, I never heard that. Never heard that yeah. growing up. So so let me let me just respond and again and say that that's not. I would say that's not what all Calvinists are teaching, or that's not what all Calvinists are familiar with or have well, been have exposed to. Get, you have to get John Piper on your show and talk to him about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> and I do. I do pick on John Piper a lot, but I think the reason for that is because you know he he's kind of the one of the at least top dogs sure. in Christianity. You know, if you go do a Google sure. search of did God choose 
you know, such and such, or what's God's sovereignty look like, you're you're yeah. going to get a lot of John Piper ask Pastor John. And so I just think it's somewhat appropriate since he does have such a loud voice. And he, I think he is saying things, Dave, I would say quite confidently, he, he would he would disagree with you, I think, on many points. Maybe. Um, I don't know. Which is which is good. That That's kind of what I was hoping to get to in this, what was supposed to be sort of just an, an initial part of this conversation of just understanding what, you know, where you would align. And, and it, you know, we could we could keep talking about this and, and getting into more of the nuances of, of what you think about all these things. But I think it would probably be good to, to move on at this point, because I think what I'm what I'm getting uh is, is again that I think the the form of God's sovereignty, at least not that we had fully agree, but I think you at least leave a lot more room in your vocabulary for words like allow or permit rather than what often, you know, J John Piper and Calvin will say, like uh, decisively cause or, or unchangeably ordain. Uh, things like that that are more just very specific, where I think it's getting more into trying to put specific limits and definitions on exactly and precisely how God's sovereignty actually works. I think they they go too far into trying to like really uh, uh, like map that out. And I think that's where maybe the, a lot of the problem comes into as, as you're so, somewhat, I think, suggesting. Um, so so anyways, that maybe before, I think this will kind of lead to- Let me make to, one comment yeah, on that. Yeah, maybe. go ahead. So, so you have to realize, Jordan, there's some pretty tough texts in the Bible that address this pretty pretty clearly that God is in control of good and evil, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know there's some some Old Testament texts. Of course, there's a few in the New Testament, too. Uh, I didn't yes. write any of those down, but um, there's a We few can get to are, some of those as well. Yeah, that would be fun to look sure. at some of those, maybe. Sure. So I know we're approaching an hour long. I don't know how long you want to go, but um, I, I got time. So it's up to you. Depends how long you want to I got this. time. So yes, there there are there's definitely very strong texts that speak about you know I I form I form the light and create darkness and so yeah. on you know in, in Isaiah and um, yeah. you know so so though maybe we could um, not yet but maybe down here maybe at, toward the end of the video we could look at some of those more you sure. know kind of as if he is saying he has this exhaustive, well, he does, has this exhaustive sovereignty over all things. And so first that quote, um, and I think this could lead into, this could lead into Ephesians one, because that's where I want, would like to go. Okay. Um, so the quote that you gave, which I love, um, again, he says, faith is like an empty open hand, an empty open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. So here, here's my problem, Dave, with that. And I'm not going to talk about Calvin, um, although I think I would I would agree with the people that might push back and say, well, he can't say that here because of the things he says elsewhere. But but let's not go there. Let's what I <laughs> what what I want to know is, OK, when when we get to the T of Tulip, which you've kind of said that you don't think that's m the most beneficial way of sure. you know, dealing with this. But but there is a T. There is a total depravity. Yeah. And. In Calvinism, and I'm not going to assume this is your version, but but that's what I'd like to find out here. In Calvinism, that quote from Calvin, faith again, faith is like an empty open hand. Basically, Calvin is saying faith is is nothing. It's not. There's nothing in faith itself that has any intrinsic value or merit or worth. As if if somebody has faith, 
now God owes them something. And so one of the biggest confusions I have with Calvinists is that when I say a person has the ability to believe without what John Piper will say, uh, he'll say that if, you know, if somebody says that they can believe without basically God decisively causing them to exert or express that sort of, you know, power, that initial power to be saved. He said, if somebody believes that somebody can have faith, then they don't understand, you know, the, the full extent of man's depravity, something to that extent. And so my, my confusion here is how can on the one hand Calvinism hold this idea of faith, that faith is nothing. It's not worth anything. It has no intrinsic value. But then they say, but if somebody chooses to have faith, they are earning their salvation or they're, they're saving themselves. They're they're meriting salvation. You know that's that's where it's just I don't I don't understand that because it's it feels like they're talking out of both sides of their mouth when they say yeah. that. So, could you kind of explain where where do you lay in there and, and how yeah. would you kind of solve what seems to me to be somewhat of a contradiction? Yeah. So that's kind of the conversation we had the other day. I don't remember if it was comments in your website or not or on your channel, but. Um, that we were not able to understand that because you were saying that Calvinists yes. claim that faith is a work. And that's one of those things that I, I heard Mike Winger talk about. And I think it was with James White and I'm listening to both sides and I'm listening to the arguments and I'm thinking, no, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. So I think, I think Ephesians two is probably the mm -hmm. clear passage that talks about that. So Ephesians two verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? So our faith, through our faith, we're saved. We're in Christ through our faith, right? Mm -hmm. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. So I think I think the view on that is that it's the, it's the classic who, who moved first, God or us, right? Did we move towards God and then he responded? Or is God moving towards us and giving us the ability to respond? That's what I believe. I believe we are given the ability to respond because even our faith is a gift. And I think that's that's as simple as it gets. Like faith is not a work. Calvinists don't believe faith is a work, but we believe that if if you're responding first, then you're doing something in response to something God is commanding you to do, but we believe that the faith itself is a gift. So which is part of okay. our salvation, right? So that's, let me just, yeah. So there's, there's a lot in that. I think I see, I, I hear what you're saying. So it, it's, it's basically this idea that faith itself is not, it's not righteousness, right? Would you agree with that? Faith isn't exactly. itself right. righteousness. It's faith that's isn't right. itself a fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law. Would you agree with that? That's right. Okay. So it doesn't have any meritorious value, but if we, if we, choose uh if that's even the right word to use if we yeah, have faith true. yeah without god first being at the forefront causing that faith to happen then us having that faith becomes what would you say there becomes a a, a, a good work becomes like earning salvation how would you word it well yeah, I, I, I just think I just think that if God's not the one moving our hearts first, he's not the one uh, who first causes us to even recognize the fact that we need him, 
then I think our faith becomes something that we do to to earn merit. And I think that's a mistake, right? You know, if we're in heaven yeah. and we and we say, you know, we're here because of what we did, I think, you know, Alistair Begg is very clear on that. He's got a couple of fantastic sermons on this. But, you know, if it if if ever you're, um, you know, if ever you say I'm saved because of I believed or because I did this, that's that's the wrong way to look at it. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I so, have faith. Yeah. I have faith because of what he did in me. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't see any other way to see that, to be honest. So, so there, there's there's so much there that will take so much time probably to unpack. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I, I think, again, I think there's some, I would see from my vantage point, some um, misunderstandings, one. But let me just go to kind of the main thing. Your your thing, Calvinism's thing is, is God has to be the one to make the first move. And if if you say man makes the first move, that's a problem. So here's, yeah. here's how I would respond to that. I... I'm confused, pretty confused about where the assumption comes from that, you know, it's that, that man has been in any sense, like left to themselves. I think the gospel and, and Romans one, you know, creation itself, where Paul will go on later to say that the heavens, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, quoting Psalm 19, basically saying creation itself in some sense is proclaiming the gospel. It's proclaiming the good news of yeah. a good God who loves and he'll say in Romans, nobody has an excuse. And, and the only ones who, you know, the ones who are experienced the wrath of God are those who willfully suppress that truth that is in their face. Then you have Paul and Acts saying that, you know, God's desire, he's, he's basically set this up. He's determined our, our every person's time that they will live and their location where they, are, they will live in such a way that they will reach out to him and gr grasp for him. And he says, because he's not far from any of us, because it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And then, you know, lastly, just simple verses like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world and, and we love first John because he first loved us. So I just the the idea that that what the Bible presents is this this I this idea that God is kind of sitting off to the side with all of humanity not not he hasn't moved toward everybody but he selects a few people to make a move toward and those are the ones who have the ability to believe what i see with all these passages and many more that i could talk about but the ones i'm talking about here is this idea that the good news the thing that makes christianity unique it's this idea that god has made the first move toward mm -hmm. the world you know god has taken the first step and he has given this ability to believe. It's not as if we just are, you know, one day an unregenerate dead and sin person is like, hey, you know what? I think I'll believe in God today because I, I just feel like, you know, exerting my own strength and energy to bring myself out of death to life. It's not like that at all. It's that there is conviction. There is there is light being given. There is the 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 conscious, the the conscience, the testimony of our own, the law written on our hearts that is I think working in every person and not exactly in the same way in the same time, but God is working. You know, Jesus says, I, I only do what I see my father do. My father is always working. And I just, so I just think the fundamental disagreement between myself and the Calvinist would be that God, God hasn't already made the first move toward everybody. And in doing so has provided 
the means, the ability to believe as a response. And so when I say that, you know, people believe not apart from God, you know, just basically decisively causing them to believe. Um, I'm not saying that they're doing that independent from God's first movement toward them. I think God makes the first move. Faith is a response, as I think you've already indicated. You know, faith is a response to something God has already done. We love yeah. because he first loved us. Yeah. So I, I agree with all of what you just said, actually. As a Calvinist, I think most Calvinists could say that too. Uh, you know, we, we talk about general revelation. I think the whole world can obviously see that there is a God. And I think even most people, if I, like I've watched a lot of Ray Comfort videos, I'm sure you know who that is. Uh, mm -hmm. Ray Comfort, when he approaches people, most people, like literally 90% or whatever, will say they do believe there's a creator for the most part. Um, and that's part, part of the general revelation. Um, are we able to choose God without God moving our hearts to actually trust in him, to actually say, I believe you died for my sins. I believe I'm guilty. You know, the thief on the cross is a perfect example of how we are to be in Christ. Is we're supposed to understand that we are guilty, understand what we deserve, understand that Christ didn't deserve what he got, and then plead for mercy. Mm -hmm. That's how we come to Christ. And that message goes out to the whole world. Whether or not people accept that or not is part of God moving in someone's heart to soften that heart so that they will accept it. Like I have a friend of mine. I don't want to talk too much about people personally, but um, I, I have a motorcycle. I go on motorcycle trips occasionally, and we've spent some time together. And I've read, read through chapters of Ephesians and through Romans and tried to explain this to him. And He's, he keeps telling me, Dave, I'm fine. I do good things. I'm fine. Like, God loves me. I'm fine. And it's like, no. <laughs> you have to condemn yourself. You have to hu be human, uh, humble. And you have to realize that you are unable. He, he's got it exactly backwards. So I agree with everything you said, Jordan. I I think the revelation, the the, the general call that goes to the whole world is clear which is why men don't have any reason uh, or any excuse, right? They're mm -hmm. all responsible. Um, yeah. But I do believe, like when you, you, you mentioned total depravity, you, this is kind of touching on that. Total yeah. depravity is, is not that men are unable to do good things. That's not what that means. What it means is that we are unable to satisfy God's wrath through our righteousness. That's what total depravity is getting at. Right. So no matter what we do, we cannot be righteous apart from Christ. So total depravity means we are depraved no matter how much we do to try to satisfy God's wrath. And that's where I think most people don't understand the Calvinist view of total depravity. Um, there's lots of people that do good things in the world. They're, they're just not good things that are earning you anything. You're not earning anything with God. There's no salvation in that. So, right. So I, I, th I think, you know, we'd, again, we'd have to talk more about the nuances of it. But just initially hearing that definition of total depravity, um, I, I could at least to some extent get behind and, and word it as like, you know, we are incapable of fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. We, we can't 
man is going to miss the mark. We can't not miss the mark unless we have, you know, the, the, the spirit of God helping us. If, and I think it involves like separation, but the definition you just gave, um, you know, from any Calvinist I've ever heard would be much different. And so I think the total depravity that I hear communicated from um, the bulk of, of Calvinists would look like, as an example, talking here about faith, that the non-elect, yes, there's this general uh, revelation, if you want to call it that, there's the witness of the, the of creation, there's the witness of the, the conscience and the law written on our hearts, all that's there, but ultimately total depravity to, you know, the Calvinism as, as it is commonly understood would mean that, um, and even in light of all of this light, you know, that God gives, mm -hmm. the non-elect can't actually believe it, it's not enough to actually enable them to go that that passed from unbelief to belief yes there's a general revelation there but ultimately some calvinists will say the purpose of that is just to bring further condemnation on them which i don't don't even understand that it's, it's enough to bring further condemnation on them but it's a not not enough to actually enable them to believe and so would you would you agree with that or would you again, have maybe some nuances in, in how you understand so I, it. I have to apologize. I was trying to find something. I wasn't exactly listening to every word you said. Nope. You're good. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. I, I get it. Um, so basically my question is total depravity as commonly understood in Calvinism today would say that, you know, all these, the non-elect, we're talking about this general revelation everybody has, that God has given yeah. everybody this ability to believe, seems to be what we're saying. Yeah. Total depravity as understood by Calvinism, the common version of it anyways, would say that, yes, there is all this general revelation given, but it's not enough to actually enable the non-elect to believe. The non-elect can't, it's not, it's, it's, it's different than the regenerating power that God gives somebody to actually believe. Yes, they have all this, the witness of the conscience, the law written on our hearts, the testimony of creation, they have the gospel even proclaimed, uh, uh, and all the other ways that God gives light to every person. Okay. But the Calvinists would say that's not that's still not enough to actually enable them to believe. All that really accomplishes is to further their condemnation because their nature is going to do nothing but it can't do anything but still reject that light. So okay. does that make sense? Would you agree yeah. with that? Well, uh, I had too many thoughts going on at the same time to respond, but uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So yes and no, because I still believe going back to God needs to act first, um, and then when we talk about the elect, you have to realize the message of the gospel does not include us even addressing that issue, because the message of the gospel goes to the world. Everyone has the ability to choose. Okay. Mm -hmm. The elect and the non-elect, but those who choose will be elect. So in hindsight, God is working out his plan. But in our view, we have no idea what that plan is. So, so when you we just talk about when we talk about the elect, we're not we're not trying to pick and choose who's going to be saved. That, that's not our job. I have no idea. I, mm -hmm. I, I have no idea. Like I talk to everybody. Right. Like I am not afraid to witness. I don't I don't 
go out in the street. But you know, when I'm when I'm at work, when I'm talking to people, they know what I believe. I, two neighbors at my cottage, they both are suffering from throat cancer, and I talked to both of them this week. Um, they know exactly where I stand. So their ability to choose is still real. They do have that real ability to choose. We don't say they don't. And I have no idea if they'll be safe. Some say they do. Well, maybe. I'm going to read a definition of total depravity right, okay. from, right from this book. Watch. <laughs> Who, who's the author of that one? Uh, David Steele and Curtis Thomas. So this is, this is short. So total depravity. When Calvinists speak of man as being totally depraved, they mean that man's nature is corrupt, perverse, and sinful. The adjective total does not mean that each sinner is totally or completely corrupt in his actions or thoughts. Instead, the word total is to indicate that the whole of man's being has been affected by sin. That's it. That's Our whole life has been affected by sin. Nature's been affected. We've been affected. That's why I said to you earlier, John Calvin is a sinful human being. I can't, I can't assume that everything he said is correct, right? You know, if John Calvin were alive today, he'd have a podcast just like you, <laughs> you know? So, so, so the, I would say again, like the Ligonier ministries, the desiring gods, the, the John MacArthur's even, I would think the James White's, the, Apology. Yeah. I mean, the, the Calvinists, at least that I'm familiar with, um, yeah. and, and and uh, the Gospel Coalition, you know, they they would say, though, that n the non elect, let's just get, we don't know, yes, agreed, we don't know who the non elect are, but they would say, if we could know who the non elect are, we would know for certain that, hey, they, they've never had an actual ability to believe. God never gave them. Yes, he gave them something. He gave them some amount, measure of, of light and, and revelation. But what he gave them wasn't enough to actually believe because they were not his elect. The only ones he actually gives, you know, uh, this, this is what, you know, people like, uh, like R.C. Sproul, Ligonier Ministers will say, this is the, the regeneration precedes faith. This is like the foundational, really, they'll say, idea. If you get this, they'll say, basically you understand Calvinism. So it's this idea that God, God has to do something to, very specific in yeah. a person, give them life to make them even able to believe. Yes. I and so this, the, the ultimate implications of that would say that therefore then God does not, he selects who to give that to and not every person in the world can believe. God withholds the ability from some to to, you know, he withholds that regenerating life. So, so, so some just doing, can't ever believe. So Jordan, what you've just done is that you've, you've taken a eternal view of what we don't see as finite beings. Okay. So in God's plan, he has chosen to elect some. Okay. But I have no idea who that is. Uh, I have three children. They're not all following God. I am able to say to myself, I am partially responsible for that by not being exactly the father that I should have been. Um, I can also say that their influences in the world have caused them to drift away. But what is my hope? My hope is that God will move their heart. 
right? When I pray, that's what I pray for. Mm -hmm. And I think as a Calvinist, what other thing can we do other than pray that God will move in their heart? And I think you would pray the same way, right? Like you would pray that right. God would move move their heart. So if you don't if you don't believe that, then how are they going to come to faith other than God decreeing eternally? They're one of my elect, and I'm bringing them to myself. They are they are chosen. They are the one who I will bring to myself. But I don't have that view from eternity. Neither do you. So what what responsibility do I have? My responsibility is to keep praying, keep trusting, keep being faithful and preach that God is love and he is kind and he is merciful. And if we humble ourselves, he always accepts us. Always. Yeah. No question. Right. And I, I, I grant that there's definitely mystery here, but, but I think again, the, the pushback I would have is that whatever mystery Calvinism affords, it's, it, there's no mystery relating to the things I'm saying. I think, you know, the RC again, I, I'm, keep mentioning these Calvinists, but the Calvinists that I've already mentioned, I think they would fully get in line with this idea, just saying it very clearly. Again, there's mystery, but there's not mystery in what I'm saying. This is something I think Calvinism would just, in their in their systematic, would just spell out, like unapologetically, that yes, within Calvinism, the fact that God has elected some means that he has chosen not to elect others, to pass them over. Some will say he's elected you know, it's double predestination. But um, so I guess the, the question I'm trying to still, I want to understand, because it seems a little bit like you're saying both. And I, I don't think that just simply saying there's mystery here uh, works, because again, I think Calvinism paints a very clear picture. So when it does come to the non-elect, even though we don't know who they are, do you, do you think in your view, though, that when all is said and done, we'll be able to look back and see that, oh, yeah, the non-elect people that was maybe, you know, Bob and Tom and Phil who weren't, they were never chosen by God. Is it true or untrue that they never had an actual ability to believe that God never actually gave them the ability to believe? Um, and Calvinism, I think, would say, well, they would have no, again, they'd be unapologetic and saying, yeah, they those the non-elect never were given the grace, the regenerating power to actually have faith. And so what, I mean, I guess, where would you stand on that particular issue? Okay. So I, 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 I just want to be careful how I word this because I don't want to make people think that I'm, uh, you know, disagreeing with what I think election means. So from God's view, is there any mystery about who's going to be saved? No. God knows. From my view, there's a lot of mystery. I don't know. So election is a view from God. Election is, is God's eternal plan. And I think when we teach it, uh, you know, the immediate response, and I, I know people who have pushed back on this. I personally know people. So, you know, how can God choose? How can God be so unloving and not choose give everyone the equal opportunity? I don't know. There's there's no answer in this world other than to say, I need to be as faithful as I can and trust him as much as I can and be a witness in this world so that everyone who is elect, I mean, there's even instances where Paul says that, like, you know, I'm going back there. I'm trying to remember the text now, but 
you know, I have more, there is still a remnant or there's still people there who I will save. So he has to go back, right? Um, God's not saving everyone. You could then argue and say, well, not everyone has equal opportunity. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. From God's view, that's probably what it is. But from my view, how do I even understand that? I can't. And in, in, in eternity, God's going to get glory for his loving mm -hmm. kindness and mercy, but also for the fact that he has wrath against sin and evil. That also is going to give him the glory that he deserves because he gets glory in both. But it is not up to me to decide who gets that and who doesn't. I, I have no mm -hmm. idea who that is. I, I don't know how else to really say it. I, I have another quote from another Calvinist that clearly teaches this. Like, you know, I think everybody has a real ability to choose from our view. So this has been probably the biggest stumbling block that I've heard usually is from, from yourself and from others who are saying, well, that's not fair. How can it be? How can God not let somebody else have that ability? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I got well, that's, that's, pages of notes. I don't know if I could find it. That's that's okay. <laughs> while while you're looking, I'll just say yeah. like that's. I think that's an honest answer, and and I'm I'm like I I think that's when when it comes down to it for for the Calvinist, what what I would hope, <laughs> and I'm appreciative of Calvinists like you, although you don't obviously your version looks different. Most Calvinists will claim that hey, mine doesn't look like this guy's or that guy's, and so there's quite a variety, but. Um, you know, a lot of times when I even present this idea that, hey, it, it seems at least on the surface, aspects of how God works in Calvinism, mm -hmm. uh, they seem to be unloving and contradict the love of God that is yeah. clearly defined in places like 1 Corinthians 13. And so I, I just I think the the response that is very unfortunate for many Calvinists is just an immediate like accusation of. It's basically gaslighting. It's like it, it, it suggests in the response that there's something wrong with me or others that we would even ask the question. It's it's about you're trying to def define love on your own terms. You're trying to make God in your own image, kind of more derogatory things or, um, you know, basically you just can't accept the the cold, hard facts of the Bible, basically insinuating that the question itself isn't a legitimate one which I think is a bit of delusional, you know, self or uh, just denial. Um, because I think at least on, at the very least, Calvinists should admit that on the surface, the things that God does justify somebody saying, you know, how, how does that work? How can God's, how can God, for instance, this very thing we're talking about, because what you've seemed to be agreeing with is this idea that the non-elect are never really, God doesn't give them an ability to believe. But then you have verses like Second Thessalonians, where it will say um, that um, <clears throat> the wicked, uh, God basically lets there be a delusion to those who don't receive the truth. And he says he will use uh, for those perishing because they because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So he's going to allow send this deception to certain people because they refuse to love the truth. And so you have the Bible saying, like, Jesus will say, you know, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Um, and it's like God sort of complaining or getting angry at people who don't respond to the light he's given and believe. And 
what I don't, I think there's the contradiction is what I would call it in Calvinism is that how can you have on the one hand, God just holding behind his back with one hand outstretched saying all day long, I've been holding out my hand, just come and take the key to salvation, you know, just believe and repent all the while he's got like the, the power of repentance and faith hidden behind his back. And so mm -hmm. it just, it feels to me like a, a massive charade, like God's playing this yeah, game yeah. on, on the front end. He's saying, why, why won't you believe? And he's, he's saying, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, weeping over Jerusalem all the while he's got the very thing he's complaining about hidden behind his back, refusing yeah. to just give it to them, knowing that they can't do the thing that he's complaining about. Yeah. And so this, this is an area where I understand what you've done. And what I think the honest, the only thing a Calvinist really can do who's consistent would be to appeal to mystery and say, this is just beyond our understanding. We just can't understand why God works that way. Yeah. If, if Calvinism was biblical, I'd say, yeah, that's, that's just what we have to do. I would just say that I don't, I don't think the Bible affords that kind of mystery, because I think when we see that sort of behavior, I think just objectively, that doesn't look like love as we think of it. And so just, just a quick example. This is something that's been big on my mind lately. Matthew 5, Jesus talking about to his disciples, saying, teaching them to love their enemies. Something very specific he says. He says, love your enemies um, so that you may be, you know, do good to those who mistreat you. Pray for those who spitefully use and abuse you and so on. And he'll say, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. And then at the very end of that little section there, he'll say, therefore, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. So basically, Jesus is commanding his disciples saying, look, you need to love your enemies perfectly, or, or I would say precisely, exactly as your father in heaven loves his enemies. So th this is one reason why I'd say I don't, think, I don't think the Bible affords this mystery, because here we're being told that we we both know and have the ability to love in the exact fashion as our father in heaven loves his enemies. If Calvinism is true and we simply have to say, look, God does things that do not seem loving. They do not line up with all the other places where we see love defined. We just have to say that's a mystery. We, we obviously just don't understand what God's love actually looks like and how it actually operates. Well, now, we're rendered completely incapable of fulfilling that command of Jesus to love perfectly as father love, because right. if God's love looks like Calvinism, you know, love is supposed to be something where we're looking out for the well-being of the other. We, we do our neighbor no harm in Calvinism. God is not ultimately seeking the ultimate good of the non-elect. He's not those, those particular enemies. He's, he's not, he's not after their best interests. Um, he's after getting glory from their ultimate demise. And so if love can look like that, basically selecting certain, yes, certain enemies we will show love to because that's what our father does. But to love perfectly as our father loves certainly cannot look like loving all of our enemies, every single individual enemy. And mm -hmm. I think at this point, the Calvinists might appeal to mystery and again say, well, we don't know who the non-elect are, so we must love everybody. But I'd say, again, the moment you do that, the moment you start loving all of your enemies equally, you are not loving perfectly as the father, as our father in heaven loves. 
you're not loving your enemies. It doesn't look, God's love for his enemies just doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like showing the same amount of concern and care for every person you come across, particularly again, in this context, your enemies. Mm -hmm. What God's love, our father in heaven's love looks like again is a very selective. He selects certain of his enemies that yes, he will show grace to, but the others, he, he will demonstrate a lack of compassion, a lack of mercy and forgiveness to, so that his, his wrath is clearly demonstrated. And so I think to love perfectly, I'm sorry, this is kind of long-winded and I'm wrapping up here. To love perfectly as our father in heaven looks loves must look like in some fashion, selecting, being selective in the enemies that we love. I don't, I'm not claiming I would know how, how that would work or how we know how to do that. But I think by definition to love, to fulfill the command of Jesus in Matthew five, I just don't see if Calvinism is true, how you could possibly think that loving all of your enemies, showing the same amount of genuine care and love for everybody. I don't see how you could see that as fulfilling a Calvinist, at least could see that as fulfilling the command of Jesus. Because okay. uh, the command of Jesus seems to imply that we can love exactly or can and should love perfectly, precisely, exactly as our father in heaven loves. And in Calvinism, that just simply doesn't look like loving everybody uh, with the same amount of care and concern. Okay. So, so to, that was sort of a sermon, from... but give me your thoughts. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Well, like, like you say, there's a lot there. So, okay. Yes, uh, I know. <laughs> All right. Uh I think that verse perfectly fits with Calvinism. And the reason is, uh, first of all, who is God's enemy? We all are. Right. In our sinful world, in the sinful world, he came to save sinners. We're all sinners. So we are all technically his enemy. So the act of him doing that for us, if we are not reciprocating that same act to the world, so that those who are going to come to him like that it would be i think it would deny our own salvation if we were not to live our lives as christians loving others in the world okay agreed uh, this this brings up another interesting point which i, I don't want to go on a tangent but um you know i've heard uh i, I did just, so you might as well yeah yeah whatever <laughs> I want to fit so much into three minutes, but anyway, I've I've heard people say I've I've listened to a ton of sermons from uh, Arminian point of view, from a, a, a point of view that you hold to, which isn't Arminian. I know. Uh, what do you call it again? Sorry, pre, um, I uh, I don't have a name for it, honestly. I, okay. No, I I don't I don't really claim to be a, a provisionist. I don't. Okay. I mean, okay. I, I I agree with much of what. The, it's interesting because a lot of the conclusions I've reached about the different passages I found okay. late and later on. And, and so I agree with much of provisionism sure. I, for the most part, but okay. I don't, I don't use and that I actually, label. I, I, actually do label. Too. I, I think provisionism has a lot of good in it. I, I just think there yeah. are parts of it that need some adjustment, which is why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> so right. when, when we talk about the world or we talk about all people, I have heard multiple sermons now of Arminians saying, all means all world always means world it's like well it means what it means in the context of what is being said okay so mm -hmm. we can't go through all those verses but um when when god says love the world well that means we are to love everyone in the world the same way 
can we do that? Are we able to do that? I, I think that's a very, very hard thing. I, I don't think we can do that. You know, when, when Jesus was talking about um, if you lust for a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Well, uh, that's a pretty tall order that mm -hmm. we can't meet. We can't meet that, right? Um, so I think I think a lot of things that we're told to do are not actually possible for us to do. The only way it's possible for us to do them is through Christ's righteousness, not our own. And I think right. the so. It is possible. No, I think it is. I well, okay. I. There was something else I had actually heard from a provisionist point of view that if total depravity is not true, then technically speaking, a man could live a perfect life. Technically speaking, I, I just don't think that the Bible teaches that. I you think said I a need, provisionist. I'm sorry. I, I don't think I heard right. that. Well, you said a well, provisionist yeah. said that if total depravity is not true, then a person could live. Then perfectly? well, the question the question was posed. Okay, so the question was posed. If, if you don't believe in total depravity, which in other words talks about our sinful nature, which I read the thing before. So if our sinful nature is corrupt, like our nature is corrupt in sin, there's no possibility of us even becoming anything other than sinful. Okay, But in a provisionist view, in a view that sees man as being born neutral, let's say, technically speaking, could a man live a perfect life? Technically speaking, in that view, yes, because man is only sinful when he chooses to sin. But if we believe our nature is sinful, like Jesus said, even if you think a lustful thought, you're, you've committed adultery. That's How can we even avoid that? It's impossible to even avoid sinning. Um, so I think Jesus' command and what you just mentioned in, where was it again, Matthew 5, I think, um, you know, you are righteous. I don't know how that verse went now. You read it. But. He, he, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay. But we can't be perfect. So why does he say that? Why does he say that to us? Well, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Bible theologian. I'd have to study right. that a little bit and see. But I, I think some of those things we're told to do and to be are obviously things we cannot do. So the only way we can come to God in righteousness is through Christ's righteousness. And I think that's why we're told these things. You know, the the, the rich uh, young ruler coming to Jesus, you know, that whole story, actually, if, to promote MacArthur, he has a fantastic sermon on that. If you listen to what he says, like, of course, that 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 ruler, he thinks he's self-righteous. He thinks, and even the disciples are saying, uh, righteousness in the Jewish faith was that if you're blessed with, you know, gifts, if you're rich and you're blessed, Obviously, you're righteous. That's what they thought. And then the, the disciples asked Jesus, well, if if he can't even be righteous, who can be righteous? And then Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So I think even that example shows that no matter what we do, we can think what we're doing is giving us some merit or giving us some form of, of favor in God's eyes. That's That's a myth. That's, you know, and there's so many religions in the world that believe things like that. You know, Catholicism to a certain degree believes that, right? Um, you, you do these things and you're okay with God. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. So, so that exact passage, you know, I'd have to read it and study it. But 
I think yeah. we're told things. I think we're told things to do that we just can't do. And how do we do them? We only do them through Christ. That's the only way we can be righteous is through Him. Yeah. So, so I, I agree that what the things Jesus commands in certain situations are things that we, I, I would, I would articulate it in the way of saying we cannot do in and of ourselves or or separate from the the enabling power of God to fulfill those things. But I think you see Paul by telling the Galatians, saying the fruit of the spirit is this, it's love, joy, peace, patience. It's all these yeah. things. Yeah. The, the natural outworking of faith in God is that you will be, you will be loving perfectly as your father loves. I think That's you will be not lusting. It's, it's the power of him yeah. working in you. Um, yeah. But, but I think the, the, <clears throat> the point here is that um, Jesus is saying that, that Yes, separate from him, separate from his power. He's saying, look, you need you need another way. I think he's basically saying the work, doing this by self-effort and works is not enough. And as much, it's Romans 7. The, the more you do that, the more sin is going to be stirred up in you. Uh, the more you try to overcome it in your own power. So he's saying, indicating, I think, uh, uh, that we need something else. And I think, again, that's faith. But the, the point is that I think we can... Jesus expects that, yes, we can't by ourselves, but we can, by the power of the Spirit, fulfill this command to love perfectly. And, and let's, we don't have to hang out here much longer. I just, I just think that the whole point of what I'm trying to say is that I, I think the Bible affords a variety of mysteries that, yes, it's okay and legitimate to just say, well, that's something we just don't understand and we don't know. But what a mist, I think there's certain mysteries that are not afforded where it becomes somewhat passive to simply uh, appeal to mystery in certain scenarios. And one of those I would argue would be this one when it's dealing with the most really arguably one of the most, if not the most uh, important aspect of Christianity is understanding God's love and what it looks like. Because if we don't understand that, what, what's, what do we know? What can we do? Um, you know, it says in first John, this is how we know what love is, you know, that he gave up his, his son for us and, and things like that. So again, we, I don't think it's okay to just say, well, th that thing God does is, is objectively, at least on the surface, an unloving thing. God, you know, everybody deserves wrath, but God has selected some to show his kindness to so that the, you know, and show his wrath on the others, not not ever giving them the the ability, as we've already talked about, not giving them a real ability to believe and then condemning mm -hmm. them for not believing. Um, and so that objectively, I would argue, is is a contradiction that I don't think can legitimately and validly just be dismissed as a mystery that we just don't know. The reason is, again, because I think we have clear definitions of love not only definitions in 1 Corinthians 13, but we have the perfect example of love walked out in the life of Christ. Okay. And I don't know, again, how my, my whole point in this, again, we don't probably best if we don't hang out here much longer, but okay. my whole point in this is that Jesus commanded us to love perfectly as yes. our, he, and he appeals to the way our father in heaven loves. Yes. I just, I don't, I don't, I think there, this deserves a legitimate response. This is a legitimate valid question. I'm not expecting you to, to do this now, but I'm just saying Calvinism. Well, I'm this deserves a legitimate response to say, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and I would just say I don't, I don't see that as a mystery that can be afforded for the reason that we are, we are. If it's a mystery, 
if it is a mystery, I'd say the problem with that is that, well, we can't fulfill that command to love perfectly because we don't well, me, know let, what let God's me, love me, looks like. Let me give a quick response. Okay. Okay. Is, is, is justice loving or unloving? Just to answer. Could you answer that? It, it, it's, it's, I think justice. it's loving. Ju true yeah. justice is, is, well, I don't know. I don't know how I'd answer that. Honestly, I'd want to. Okay. I want to think so, about that. I'm not. So, heaven I'll appeal to mystery. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> hey, you're in my camp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> if if your child was abducted and the person who did it was caught and charged and convicted, you would say that judge is just and loving in his conviction because it is giving justice to something that deserves justice. Because God is the judge, uh, he's the king, he's the ruler, like he's everything. Uh, when God gives justice, it is loving because he is giving justice that was perpetrated, evil was perpetrated against him, okay? So what we have to realize is that in him giving justice, no one is gonna be treated unjustly. How he decides that, how how I can say I am in Christ is is something I just need to give more and more um, glory to him for because why he chose me, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, could he have let me go? Listen, I quit life group in our church about four, four or five years ago. I was frustrated. This is all this whole thing I was talking about earlier. I why I'm back where I'm at, can I say it was because of what I did? Yeah, I can actually. I could say I started doing this and this and this better. Can I ultimately say it was me? No, I can't. I can't. I can't say that I came back the way I did and my wife, you know, too, like it, she was praying for me every day. So I went through a struggle, a big struggle. And I, I can honestly say that I, I am now where I'm at, which is hopefully continuing, is because I'm in Christ now. So why why that decision was made to bring me this far, I don't know. And not my neighbor, not someone else I know, not my friend. So I, I, all I can do is continue to have that faith. And, you know, yes, there's mystery here. You can't say that we can understand this. You know, your objection doesn't really solve the problem because we know there will be people in hell. Could God save them all? Yes, he could. Why doesn't he? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, one of the pastors I met, I was mentioned to him a few weeks ago, I had met with him, and he said to me, you know, the book of Ephesians, some people are led to believe that because of the book of Ephesians, they become universalists, because they just cannot see God using his wrath against anyone, uh, that that's that danger exists in the book of Ephesians, and I thought, that's interesting, I, I need to do more time to study that, but um, it's that's an interesting point, so who... Someone's going to hell. We know Jesus said that. Some how how we can yeah. figure that out. Listen, I don't know. So 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 it, side road, but my my views of hell are somewhat pending. Um, but but I I do pretty confidently this might this might trouble some people. But that's it is what it is. I do pretty confidently not affirm the traditional eternal conscious torment view. That's a, that's a whole other discussion, mm -hmm. but just, just to have that awareness. But he, here's, here's where I'd say the distinction comes here, Dave, is that 
I get what you're saying. I get that there's a mystery and I'm not claiming that I know every specific reason why you are where you are and somebody else isn't where they are. I'm not going to go and like draw a diagram and say, well, it's because you had faith here and you did, you, you yeah. were humble here. You know, I don't know. I do think that the Bible does put emphasis over and over again on our, our responsibility to humble ourselves and have faith. So yep. I do think that, and I think it would be a little bit silly for me to not just assume biblically that, hey, I can say pretty confidently, Dave, based on the scripture, part of the reason you are where you are, if you're following God, is because there's been hu you're, there's been humility in you. And the, the important thing would be to make a distinction between you having humility and that being equivalent to you fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, which is so often uh, a false equation that is made that if you can realize that, Hey, you having humility, that is not equivalent to you fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. I think there's such a category error here where Calvin is see, Oh, well, you're not, you're not capable, you know, you're totally de depraved. You can't be righteous on your own. If you're doing, if you're humble in any way, you're, you're fulfilling that. Well, people all around the world show humility in various contexts, you know, husbands and wives, when, when there's a fight, you know, there's, there's, if it's going to be resolved is going to, by necessity, I think, involve a measure of humility. So humility in itself, I think is just, you have to be out of touch with reality. A person has to be out of touch with reality to think that humility is not something that everybody has the capacity to express. And so I'm going off on a side road here. My, my point is just to say that, uh, and, and let me say this, and then I'll let you have the kind of the final word on this particular thing. And then let's maybe try to get to Ephesians if you have the time, because we keep saying we're going yeah, to do Ephesians another time. If you don't mind, I, I should. Yeah, that's fine. Then, so that, that's fine. Yeah. So so let me just yeah. say say this and we can wrap, wrap this up. The, the difference here is that, yes, there's a mystery in all this and how this works. How does God's sovereignty work with our response and our humbling of ourselves? Um I think the dis difference would be, though, in terms of people being in hell, whatever hell, people being judged, people having condemnation, which which some will, some will be condemned. I don't claim to know exactly what that means or what that looks like. But the difference is that in Calvinism, those who are condemned are condemned because that has been what God specifically ordained for them unchangeably. So in other words, these people disbelieve and disobey the second Thessalonians I just read. They perish. They're condemned. They're given over to false delusions because they refuse to receive a love for the truth. Well, really what Paul's describing there in Calvinism is, is secondary at best as, as far as causality. Because underlying that in Calvinism is actually they refuse to, to receive a love for the truth because God refused to grant them the ability to love the truth because God hated them before they were born. According to Romans nine, you know, Jacob, I love Esau. I hated the way Calvinists often interpret that God hated them. And so they were born with the nature to hate him back. And now they're going to perish for eternity because God is going to condemn them for doing the very things he caused them to do. This, again, I people will just say, hey, he's being emotional. He's making an emotional argument. I would just call back and say, no, I'm not. This argument I'm giving is based upon not emotion, but the revelation of God that is given in Scripture, the definition of love given in 1 Corinthians 13, and the description and command to love perfectly that is given in Matthew 5. And I would just say this is... This this is not something I think that can be appealed to mystery because we we have to know what love really is 
or we can't be Christians, I would say. If love is a mystery, what it what it is, what it looks like, I don't see how Christianity can function because at, at base level, we have to know what love is and what it looks like to love people. And, and if Calvinism, again, I'll just say if Calvinism can look or God's love can look like that, then that's an issue. And so ultimately the difference would be between those who are condemned in hell and Calvinism are condemned in hell because that's precisely what God wanted to happen and unchangeably ordained it to be that way. Um, gave, you know, even if we just leave it to not determining every sinful desire, as Calvin would say, but just say he, he withheld, he willfully, purposefully withheld the ability from these people to ever believe. And then he condemns them for not believing. I'd say that I don't, that's, that's squaring a circle to me. It's saying this is an unjust, just thing. Because again, objectively, I would say from the moral law written on our hearts, from the biblical testimony of what goodness should and can does look like, that's not good. And so if it is good and we simply have to appeal to mystery, well, now we no longer know what goodness is because goodness is actually mysterious in terms of what it should look like. We, we don't know what goodness is because it can look like something that fundamentally disagrees with everything we we know and think about what goodness looks like. No human in any human court, you know, just court law system would would bring that sort of condemnation upon a person. You know, if if it was found in the scenario you described, I'm fi- I'm sorry, I'm ranting again. I'm finishing up here. Okay. It was, if it was found in the scenario of the murderer or the abductor, the person who abducted the children, like like you said, probably five minutes ago. Yes, that would be just if a judge condemned him. Absolutely, I 100% agree with you. What would not be just is if it was discovered later on, uh, as Leighton Flowers kind of gave this analogy, and I think it works, if it was found later on that at night, the night before, somebody, a scientist had snuck into this guy's room and secretly implanted like nodes into his brain that would rewire what his desires were and cause him to only desire to abduct children. He couldn't help but only desire that. And, and, and he took away through these nodes and the, 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 the electrical things that were ca- being caused in his brain caused him to only desire to abduct children. And that desire to not abduct children was completely withheld from him. If that was discovered later on, I guess what I'll ask you as my, my final end to this spiel would be, would, that, would we be able to justly condemn that person as having committed a horrific crime and and look at him as a criminal? Well, I think in your view, the only way to justify that is to say God is not in control of everything, right? That's the only logical conclusion because if- if I don't think so though. Well- I would disagree with that just just to point out, but go ahead. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, you're, you're putting me on the spot a little bit. I mean, it, it, you I know, know. Like I said, we're trying to take an analogy that's a human analogy and, you know, attribute it to eternal salvation for all eternity. Like, it's just a, such a hard thing. Right. But I think I think we have to always remember that justice will always be served. God is kind, loving and just merciful. And how he how he shows his mercy to some, but not to others. How do we answer that question? Yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to live a faithful life. Like through this, I hope I hope other people out there will see 
you know, the Calvinist view is not what a lot of people seem to think it is. That's one of the objectives I had coming to do this was, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think I think really there are some misconceptions. Um, they're not all unfounded. I understand that. There's some there's some difficulties with a deterministic view of of how people live their life thinking that way because there's a danger of thinking, well, I'm elect, you're not, too bad for you. Well, the Bible never teaches that, right? And people who think that way, and there is that danger that that does exist. I mean, Calvinists mm -hmm. can can become haughty. They can become arrogant. Extreme, uh, yeah. Right? But a lot of the objections don't just apply to us, right? There are other people I've seen in other types of Christianity that I've also seen evidence of. Oh, that. absolutely. I think, right? I, I don't think that's just, a, a, you know, I mean. No way. Way. No, way. Uh, no. Not even on, close. Right. On Leighton Flowers, and I, I really don't want to name names, but I mean, Leighton is one of the main guys, obviously. So right. he interviewed a pastor, okay? And this pastor came out of Calvinism. So Calvinism, bad, obviously, in his mind. But what he described, what I heard him describing was that he was angry, he was arrogant, he was prideful. Therefore, Calvinism's bad. Well, all I can think of is like, well, I've met tons of Calvinists who are not arrogant or proud. They're very humble, and the whole idea of Calvinism is that if you if you think you're elect for some reason, that's a problem. It it should make you as humble as you could possibly be, right? So when I hear someone speak that way, and then they blame Calvinism for their sinful actions, I don't quite that doesn't quite fit with me. So yeah, um, yeah. you know, and like I said, I've heard other views from Arminian views. There's a few preachers I heard that were Arminian preachers that were kind of uh, uh, blunt, I guess you could say, that were also, wow, okay, that's that's pretty strong language, but okay. But anyway, so it's all out there, right? Listen, yeah. God, yeah. God is a God of love and mercy, and he will, you know, let me let me read this last quote, and then maybe we just read okay. it. So yeah. uh, an early Puritan, his name was John Preston, he said this, um, go and tell everyone without exception that there is good news for him. Christ is dead for him. We preach Christ crucified. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all that come to him. He promises to save all that will come to him. That's a Calvinist. That's what the Bible teaches. Everyone that comes to me, I will never turn anyone away. And how election works into that, that's not up to me to worry about. If, yeah. if, God is if God is working this out somehow, that's all I can do is trust him, right? So. Yeah. Well, I Dave. Think, I think it was providential that I met you. Like, yeah. I really do believe that. I, I hope that this conversation will help people. I, I mentioned that to you in a text. I I really hope people will, you know, not not decide which camp they're in. I don't really care what camp they're in, to be honest. I, I want them to rest in Christ. I want them to be stronger in their faith, um, be good parents, be good husbands and wives, live a life that is honoring to God, and be a witness in the world through those actions. That's what I think yeah. people should do. So Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, obviously we fundamentally disagree about some things, but I, I look at you and I see a, a 
a brother and a friend. You know, I used to kind of think, and you know, I'll be honest, I used to kind of think that, you know, people's motives were wrong. Alyssa Childers, I watched her a video from her about a year and a half ago. And she says, we can't, we can't judge motives. Like you have to have the idea that everybody's trying to do the right thing. Right. And that kind of, that kind of hit me because it's like, yeah, that's true. Why am I thinking that if they don't agree with me, they're trying to do something <laughs> wrong, right? Like that's just yes. that's so silly. Why, that's an excellent point, that? Dave. So, yeah. yeah. That is an excellent point. And that's that's get, gets at the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. It, it, it says Absolutely. love believes all things, hopes yeah. all things. Yeah. Love, what it looks like is looking at the person and you you your initial reaction is to think the best of them. You hope that the best of their character until you're proven otherwise. Thank you for listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, you can find links in the show notes of this episode to our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media accounts. There have been a handful of people that have jumped on to support on a monthly basis in the past month or so, and I just want to say thank you to all of you. Thank you also to Burns Cornerstone Community Church and all the other monthly financial supporters who make it possible for me to do what I'm doing. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people.